helping pharmacists grow themselves, their business, and driving outcomes. This is Pharmacy Now. Welcome to the Pharmacy Now podcast. I am your host, Scott Von Dalen, excited for episode number five. We have a special guest here today. Before we jump into that, I want to take a moment, as we have been over the past several episodes, to thank the healthcare workers on the front lines out there fighting COVID-19. I know there's been a lot of national recognition for all those healthcare workers, but cannot say enough about the job that they are doing uh, to keep us all healthy and happy during this really critical time in the history of our nation and around the world um, for their service. We, we always have uh, great respect for first responders and healthcare workers, but really a round of applause for all of them uh, out there uh, doing their job and doing it so well uh, during these challenging times. So we thank you very, very much. Uh, we are joined here today by a very special guest, uh, Dr. Sandra Leal is uh, here with us today. Just to give a little bit of background on Dr. Leal, she is currently the Executive Vice President of Innovation at Symphonia RX that provides uh, medication therapy management services nationally. Uh, Dr. Leal is also working to establish integrated clinical pharmacy services in a variety of programs, including a hospital discharge program, integrated uh, behavioral health clinics, accountable care organizations, or ACOs, and patient-centric medical homes. Dr. Leal received her PharmD from the University of Colorado and her MPH in public health practice from the University of Massachusetts. Uh, Dr. Leal completed her residency at the Southern Arizona VA Healthcare System. Her work has been published uh, in Diabetes Care, Advances in Chronic Kidney Disease, in the American Journal for Health System Pharmacy, and a discussion paper published by the Institute of Medicine entitled Patients in Healthcare Teams Forging Effective Partnerships. And most recently, in May of 2019, she was elected to a three-year term as president of APHA. Dr. Sandra Leal, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. We are excited to have you here. We have a number of things to discuss. Uh, but to start off a little lighter, love to ask the question, since this, this is the Pharmacy Now podcast, and you are, of course, a pharmacist. Uh, Sandra, how and why did you first get involved in pharmacy? I love to ask this question because I love to hear the personal backstory, um, but why did you choose pharmacy as a profession? Well, I chose pharmacy as a profession because I actually used to go to the pharmacist as a, as a child to get my health care. And so for me, the pharmacist was the primary care provider, and I looked up to the pharmacist. Uh, I actually grew up in Nogales, Arizona, which is right on the border of uh, in Southern Arizona. And we used to go to Mexico, talk to the pharmacist, receive our care. And so it was a great access point for being able to communicate on any of the needs uh, that we had for our healthcare. So that to me was the point of access for care. And so I thought, yeah, that's what I want to be. I want to be a pharmacist. I love it. And right there with you, I am not a pharmacist, as I've uh, said very many times, but 
uh, had that same experience uh, as a young man growing up in Ohio, uh, going to the pharmacy to uh, get all of our medical advice, essentially, uh, with my mom, one of three children. And uh, that really was the healthcare destination, was going to our local uh, independent pharmacy and remembering my mom asking all of the questions uh, to make sure that we were all ha uh, happy and healthy. So uh, that's that's amazing. Love to hear these stories. Um, so let's just dive into it. You're the current president-elect of APHA. Uh, you have this incredible resume. Uh, what is, during these times, COVID-19, uh, what is APHA doing right now to combat COVID-19? What's their involvement? What does that look like today for the listeners? APHA has been incredibly involved in really trying to be a resource for pharmacists that are out there in the front lines providing care during this pandemic. And as we've all seen, uh, pharmacists have really stepped up their essential healthcare workers, and they've really addressed a need for patients that are out there with a lot of questions, anxiety, and need for things like their medications, continuity of care, and then testing now that we're seeing that being a, a big thing. So APHA has been has always been, but really has really been leading the efforts on advocacy to represent the profession and then looking for opportunities um, post-pandemic to make sure that a lot of the, the, the status that we're receiving, the flexibility and being able to assess and order uh, testing, and then the recognition that we've been seeking for a long time, APHA is, is very actively representing that. Um, that's one of the big elements, the advocacy piece. Uh, but aside from that, it's also been a resource center for pharmacists, providing you know, immediate information around uh, CE related to COVID, uh, a resource center for you know, how to uh, operationalize your pharmacy as it relates to things that you need to change or adopt baseline CDC guidelines. So they've been a really great resource center to be able to go out there and, and find information that's impacting day-to-day -day needs. So in terms of the resources that you're talking about, is it as simple as going to APHA, uh, APHA's website uh, to find out if I'm a pharmacist for, for resource purposes and I want to take part in one of these CEs or gather additional information? Absolutely. So there is a, a, on the website a pharmacist guide to coronavirus. And within that page, there's a ton of resources that are outlined there. There's public resources. There's specific imp information about how APHA is working you know, for the pharmacist. Uh, but there have been some town halls that they've been holding on a weekly to biweekly basis, um, a series on on COVID-19, a uh, 15-minute podcast kind of model where you, know, you go in and you listen to the latest FAQ, what, what frequently asked questions are coming to you at the pharmacy um, to respond to. So that's been very helpful. I've been following that every week. And it's been simple things like, you know, which medications are appropriate to be using based on the evidence um, does, you know, for example, does zinc work? Because that's been one of the questions that, that's been asked multiple times, things like that, so that you can actually be prepared with evidence to respond uh, to uh, whoever's asking that question that's coming into the pharmacy. So those are just a couple of examples. But they also link to other really good examples of um, resource centers like NASPA. And NASPA has a lot of the state level information. So if there's been, <clears throat> excuse me, specific um, state level uh, regulations or, or things of that nature, there's a link through APHA to get to that and then to CDC, FDA for some of the recent changes with um, compounding uh, and then also the, the information around testing. Great. 
So I did want to ask, you know, I talk to a lot of pharmacists on a regular basis. Again, not a pharmacist, do not own a pharmacy. Um, but what do you feel like, based on the information that you have at your disposal and your involvement at the level that you're at, what is really the largest challenge? When you talk about testing um, and, you know, rolling back regulations, pharmacies are able to get involved maybe perhaps for the first time in this type of initiative outside of immunization services that I know 80 plus percent of pharmacies now offer, uh, particularly in the independent space, according to NCPA. What is the biggest challenge for pharmacies that are raising their hand and saying, we'd love to provide testing? What, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are you hearing right now? Right now, it, it, there is a lot of confusion uh, about exactly what can be done and what can't be done. And there has been some um, information that's coming from a federal level, but that might differ from the state level and what kind of, you know, what kind of uh, regulations you do have on that local level. So I think that's been one of the biggest source of confusion. So I have been participating locally in my own state's uh, town hall. So here in Arizona, where I'm located, um, we have a town hall every Wednesday, and, and I listen to specific state information, um, which is very critical, especially as I'm also hearing the federal information and trying to reconcile both. And they're talking. It's not like they're separate from each other because our state association is definitely in communication um, with the with the federal level and trying to get clarity. Uh, but that's really where we try to, to work together to obtain that clarity. And APHA has been great at, at going back um, where, when there hasn't been the specific guidance that people are looking for, um, you know, what kind of uh, what kind of CLIA waivers do you need? Do you actually need them or not? Can you bill? Um, and there is a separation between the authority of being able to assess an order versus the authority to bill. And so even, you know, within that, what what is allowed and what isn't allowed. So those are the confusing um, items that have caused a lot of questions for pharmacists, because obviously they want to do it right. Um, they want to make sure that they're providing the most accurate information. And obviously there's a, a lot of implications when you're starting a process like that, that you want to make sure you have all the information so you're not doing anything that would um, be of concern. So those are the greatest challenges right now. I hear you. Can we dive in for a second to the billing piece? Because I've got some information in front of me. Again, I've, I've heard uh, a few different scenarios, but um, and maybe you don't have all the answers because there's a lot that's evolving on a daily, weekly basis as we kind of work through this. But what does the what what, what do the billing options look like today for pharmacies uh, that are getting paid that are not getting paid? If you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, and actually there was going to be, and I, I haven't found out the status of this, but there was going to be a discussion on a national level um, yesterday. Uh, to try to clarify some of that. So to your point, I don't have the answers because it is literally evolving as we speak. And there have been conversations on a national level with CMS where the uh, pharmacy associations are trying to be to obtain that clarity, to be able to pass that back to the profession. Um, so there have been some clarifications though in the process. CMS did release some information about a week ago uh, where they're talking about um, obtaining CLIA, uh, you know, the CLIA certification, and then that would allow pharmacies to be able to bill um, for, for, for the, for the testing for COVID. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it's still, there's still lack of clarity because even though there was that potential billing option, the CLIA, um, application, there were some questions around how to do that, um, what resources to do that with, um, even on the state level, like AZPA actually put together programming, 
um, and a webinar for people, like a basically module so that pharmacists could walk through that and really understand what the steps are, how to fill out that application appropriately so it doesn't get kicked back and delay their ability to be able to participate. Um, so those are the resources that I, I would highly recommend, you know, go to your local level because there's those local uh, specific um, resources that are available, but then definitely stay uh, con in contact with your uh, national associations because they're also providing education and the most um, reliable, most recent information that's available based on the their meetings that they're having on, on that federal level. So I'm still... I, I, I bet within the next 24 hours, we'll, we'll hopefully start hearing back some information about that meeting um, that's happening to start clarifying some more of those questions that are still out there. Makes sense. Um, I wanted to ask, and I don't want to put you on the spot to try and be the Notre Dame of COVID-19, um, but when you talk amongst your colleagues and, and again, you know, diving into these uh, webinars and other podcasts and the information that you're gathering there at Symphonia and, and uh, Tablet Rasa Healthcare, et cetera. The timeline of COVID-19 is so interesting to me and, and the folks that I've talked to, different executives, pharmacy owners, et cetera, where it's, are, are, we, are we too late? Can I really provide testing? Have I missed the wave of that from the business side of things um, to say, is it something that I want to participate in? Do you feel like COVID-19, getting involved in the testing of that, obviously the possibility of an immunization down the road once that's uh, approved and gone through uh, the different rounds and phases of, of trials, et cetera, but do you feel like COVID-19 testing um, is going to kind of be a permanent staple in, in the model of pharmacy for the foreseeable future? I absolutely do, because I, I mean, we have so many people we haven't tested yet, so Absolutely. So COVID for sure, antibody testing, which is also receiving a lot of attention, um, even if you're looking, and I always look at other countries to see their experience, because some countries have obviously experienced COVID uh, sooner than us. Uh, in China, for example, and in some of these areas that have essentially, you know, flattened the curve, they've cleared, they're starting to see second rounds of, um, of infection again. So they're starting testing again and trying to contain that. So I feel like until we have an actual vaccination in place or until we have a, a very good process in place on how to mitigate, we're going to really rely on trying to get people tested, uh, make sure that we have that as an access point. And I feel pharmacies are well positioned to be able to do that. You know, like you mentioned earlier, pharmacists are already vaccinating. Um, obviously, we're looking for a vaccine for COVID, uh, much like strep testing, you know, pharmacies are able to do point of care, they can test. Um, and then based on that, and based on the scope of practice, you're able to provide care uh, at different levels. So I feel like we are still going to see that opportunity continue. And so I don't think like we've met, we've missed the opportunity there. I feel we're in the beginning of that. And we are still heavily, heavily behind on where we uh, should be to be able to really feel comfortable in reopening the economy and, and making sure people are going back to work um, with some, you know, with, with some comfort that, that we are getting there. So the contact, con contact tracing is the other piece um, to consider as part of that. And testing is a very key part uh, of all of this. Couldn't agree with you more. We've got 60,000 pharmacies nationwide um, when you look at the big picture of it. And, and as mentioned, you know, 60,000 access points for 
um, you know, patients nationwide to be able to walk into a pharmacy, get that testing. So no reason. And we're so we're all very happy to see some of those regulations being rolled back and allowing pharmacies to provide uh, this type of care. So thank you so much for, for your thoughts on that. Well, let's steer away from COVID-19 for a moment. I'm sure we'll get back into that. Um, and let's just talk about what you're really focused on today. You're the executive vice president of Symphony RX that's providing uh, telephonic uh, MTM services nationwide. You're the uh, president-elect for APHA. Um, I read off there your resume and your intro just a few ago, um, talking about some of the different things that you've been involved in. What are you, what are you doing today? What are you focused on? I know this COVID-19 thing for a lot of us has kind of taken over and understandably so, but what are your initiatives and focuses right now outside of the COVID-19? So for my, pretty much my entire career and also, you know, as part of the reason that I ended up really working and getting involved in a, uh, in a, in a political way, I guess, with within the profession is to actually have pharmacists recognized as part of the care team. And so I have been working um, as a care provider in a federally qualified health center previous to joining Symphonia. I was in an FQHC for 14 years, really developing collaborative practice agreements and models where pharmacists were part of the team before the prescription was written. So actively managing people with chronic conditions, making sure they had the best outcomes, um, and really trying to make sure that the pharmacists were being utilized the way that, the, that we are trained. Um, and so that's always been a really significant uh, focus of mine and, and truly the platform for why I ran for APHA um, to represent the profession to, and to make sure that our profession is uh, really respected in that way and, and included as part of the primary care solution. Because we have so many pa patients out there that don't have a very good access to care. And now what we're seeing um, in rural communities and in many areas is that there are pharmacies closing, there's hospitals closing, there's provider, you know, physician offices closing, there's a lot of consolidation. And so we're, we're seeing areas of the country that actually have less access to care. Um, so I've always had a passion for working with underserved communities. Um, and so this all of these things have really come to a significant cross point where I feel like a lot of what I'm doing is trying to address those, those areas of, of helping people with access and then also positioning pharmacists to be able to help as part of that solution. So I joined Symphonia because of the opportunity to provide a very scalable model and being able to utilize pharmacists and being able to utilize technology to reach people that had challenges in being reached. And so I love technology. I love to use what's out there and to leverage that in a way to access and better help to reduce that fragmented, fragmented care for the patient. So it's just been such a great um, opportunity to be able to do that. And that's what, what uh, Symphonia has been able to provide. So really taking the models I, I learned at the FQHC level, taking those and really trying to make them um, apply on a national scale, and then looking at our relationship with with the community pharmacists to be able to um, leverage both. Because one of the things that I, I've you know personally uh, been challenged with, and what I get questions about all the time is like, well, you know, telehealth isn't the same as face to face. You can't have that same type of relationship with the patient. And my you know my discussion point around that is that it's not one or the other. It's actually both, and you need multiple touch points with that individual patient to be able to make sure that they have continuity of care 
all the time because people don't just need you once a year. They need you multiple times because questions come up. And so how best can we do that? And the best way to do that is by having those different ways to reach people um, and basically using the ways that they want to be reached versus how we feel we want to reach them. So it is really thinking about that combination um, to have better outcomes for the patient. So if we walk through that patient journey for a second, um, for those listeners that are not pharmacists and aren't involved at the level that, that you are uh, with the extensive experience, if I'm a patient in, a, in an underserved community, in a rural community, uh, that perhaps the pharmacy in my community closed uh, three, four, five months ago, or my physician's office has been taken over, where do I start in gaining access to care? And I know that might sound like kind of a, I don't want to say dumb question, but you know, wh- where does that journey start for me as a patient to find that care if my normal provider has closed down? And then kind of where does your model then come in, if that makes sense? Um, yes, our model comes in, um, in in multiple ways. So we have different programs that we've developed to be able to reach patients um, for example, one of the one programs that we just launched um, this past year, we've been working with the, with the American Pharmacist Foundation and the CDC to launch a diabetes prevention program that's available through uh, telephonic and telehealth. Um, it's actually uh, modules that we created for DPP, for diabetes prevention, that are available to individuals through um, a telephone, through a computer if they have access to data, even if they don't, they can call in for the classes. And then we actually use our staff and in our call centers to be able to reach on a weekly basis out as health coaches for individuals that can't come in to one of the classes or for many reasons, maybe there isn't an accredited DPP program within any proximity to them, or there are numerous classes that have to be um, attended to be part of that program. Um, And a lot of people have challenges. Even if you have a site locally, sometimes you can't get there once a week, because you have competing priorities, like, you know, your family, your job, um, child care issues, things like that. So what we were, what we created is something that actually creates that flexibility for individuals. Uh, and they don't, there's not a geograph, a geography that they're bound by, or even um, a specific time that they have to attend, because they can access it at whatever convenience is, is good for them. So those are the kinds of things when we look at current programs, what we're trying to do is look at those models um, that we know are successful and then trying to s- create a, an access of those programs in a way that actually worked for the patient versus expecting them to show up to class, um, you know, for 26 weeks for a year to be able to do that effectively. So it, it's those kinds of things that we've been able to do that. And so we actually, um, we have worked with local uh, providers, local pharmacies for referrals for those programs with grocery stores. Um, we thought of, uh, different organizations that we can partner with, you know, schools, things like that, where it kind of your non-traditional uh, collaborators to be able to do outreach for programs like this so that we're making sure that we're reaching those that might not even know about our programs. Amazing stuff. And so really a nice transition because one of the other uh, subjects we want to get into is what is the, what does the future of pharmacy look like with prescribing authority? Really a hot topic from anyone involved in this and, and you know, all the articles and movement out there. You mentioned before your involvement uh, in legislation and government. 
uh, course and, and how that relates to APHA, et cetera. And again, a topic that we cover regularly with guests on the show uh, when we talk about prescribing authority, let's just dive in. You know, when you talk about that, changing the landscape of pharmacy and how it's really shaping the future for the lay listener, what does that really mean in terms of how that can change pharmacy when we talk about prescribing authority? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think that the COVID example, again, just because it's so topical and relevant is an example, right? Now we have, uh, we've been given the authority to assess and to be able to order COVID testing. So what I think of when I think of pharmacy is I think of access points and I think of them providing a service um, especially in areas that don't have maybe that ability to um, have so many access points. Um, even in the example I, I discussed earlier, diabetes prevention, diabetes self-management, uh, self those are services that pharmacies are already providing. So this isn't even the future. It's happening now, but I see those being able to be expanded because there's so much need. When I think about just the condition of pre-diabetes, we have almost... 90 million people, so one in three, basically, people who have prediabetes in the United States. So there is no way with our current providers that we could ever manage the volume on just that one without, you know, without really getting everybody on board. So when we think about what the pharmacists can, can do is that they can be another access point that provides these types of services, um, access points for diagnostics. Um, a lot of assessment on social determinants of health, which is now becoming a, a really hot topic for, for my own practice and for my previous 14 years as a federally qualified health center. That's all I did is address social determinants and barriers to, to care, such as, you know, how to access medications that uh, were expensive, how to make sure people aren't having duplicate therapy because they're trying to access care from multiple providers, um, you know, understanding the socioeconomic challenges that people have. Um, if people right now, a lot of people have lost their job, what do they do in the interim with their medication if they can't now afford it because they don't have insurance? Like, how do we sit with them and really talk about alternatives and options for them to actually receive care and not miss a beat as they're still trying to maintain their condition? So those are all roles that pharmacists are actively playing, but that we continue to focus on, on being able to do. Um, but I think one of the biggest challenges for pharmacists is that you know, we haven't had that same level of recognition as other providers. So we, what we want is parity. We want to be recognized like other providers um, and be able to provide that same level of care uh, so that people have better outcomes. Because truly, we need to have a, a better handle on the increasing costs of care. And I think that pharmacists are a very, very significant contributor in being able to help um, with better outcomes and true value-based care. Yeah. And you mentioned a little earlier, um, there's a big difference, as we all know, on several subjects between the federal level and the state level. Um, so, you know, there's a big difference as a, as a comparison to, uh, to listening to the White House versus listening to the governor uh, as it would apply to, you know, the COVID-19 crisis that we've been in and state lockdowns, things of that nature. But with pharmacy at the federal level versus the state level, and we had a guest on a few weeks ago, we dove into this um, because the state level adds this other layer of complexity. Um, what is the involvement right now um, 
at the state level that that you've been involved with or focused on and helping pharmacies? And, and how does that challenge in your mind differ um, from from the federal level? This is a great question because we always go back, like back and forth, even on in, even at APHA and, and here locally, you know, at what level should we be involved? And I always talk to pharmacists about being involved in students because I, I, I we have a lot of students that we work with and we're affiliated with universities. But advocacy has to start at every single level. And I even think about within your own local organization where you work. Um, so when I think about advocacy at, at your local level, it's the policies and procedures within your own pharmacy or you know, or health system, because you can actually advocate and do things within a system like that, that have a lot of impact on your day to day practice. But then obviously, on a state level, there's a lot of implications about Medicaid payment within your state. Um, and then also the commercial payers within your state. And then on a federal level, which we consider, a lot of times, it's referred to as a holy grail, if we make some federal sweeping legislation, then that could potentially impact uh, a state, you know, state um, authorities and things like that. But but as we saw in this example with COVID, even though we did have more of that federal um, language that came out, there was still a kickback to the state. So they are very, uh, you can't decouple them, essentially. You have to work with both of them, and then you have to be ad advocating on both levels and learning from each other so that you can actually massage the language to actually get to the point where you need to with your practice. And that's where I think collaboration, not just within your state, but with other states, taking best language, best practices, what's worked with one state that you can actually model to bring back to your state. And then, you know, pulling that together on a federal level for examples to federal legislators that, that they can also see um, as viable options. That all comes together when you're really having an effective advocacy um, agenda. And so on both levels, and again, on your local system level, I think that it's very critical to be involved um, it's very critical to constantly be looking for examples and to share. You know, I always, one of the, I think the key things that I've always leveraged is, is good PR, uh, talking about how we make a difference, you know, having patients speak on our behalf, um, sharing examples of, of things that we do to contribute. Those go a long way to make a big difference uh, in, in showing the value that we bring to, um, you know, to care. So I, I can't stress that enough because it, it really comes down at the very basic level to, to the, the stories. Um, but obviously, you do have to follow that up with data and, and the outcomes that you're having to show that what they're investing in, which is, you know, you and the interventions you're making, they do have a good return on investment for the system. And I think we consistently show that time after time. Uh, we just have to keep reminding them <laughs> as, as they're trying to make those policies or those laws. Yeah. So would you say the best way for an individual pharmacy to be involved um, in this ongoing effort to shape and mold and, and change uh, policy is to get involved at the state level first? So if I'm a pharmacy owner and Kentucky or Ohio uh, would be to really just get involved with my state pharmacy association first and foremost? I think it definitely, I mean, for, I, I would say absolutely. The state, absolutely. Uh, that is very much your local practice. So you, that would be something that I would highly recommend. And, but I would say, you know, don't stop there. That's definitely one that you have to be involved with. But I also think on that national level, because uh, both have implications to the practice. Truly, both of them do. So you really have to think about, you know, how to leverage both together. Uh, but if you have to choose, you know, I, I, it's hard for me because I've always been involved on both levels. And I've seen the impact 
with both that are very critical. In fact, you know, I use the experiences, like I, I mentioned earlier, AZPA, and I take that to APHA and vice versa, APHA back to AZPA, and then the communication that needs to happen for those to be successful. We've seen it here with COVID. I know that a lot of states have taken action, but they obviously still have to understand the federal um, policies that are coming down, you know, things like uh, PPE and the implications around that. You can try to work on it on a state level, but at the end of the day, you need to have both working together in order to actually have a better strategy. Yeah. So thank you for that insight. Um, Wanted to also get into the conversation around immunizations and just to show, I think, to the listeners sort of a little bit of the complexity of what we're dealing with at the state level as it applies to the subject of immunizations. Um, with COVID-19 out there on the horizon, again, when that immunization may be available, if you could just give me a little bit of insight. So my understanding is that today at the state level, pharmacies can provide immunizations uh, based on the regulations at most state levels, and it's kind of uh, fragmented, uh, that they can provide the N1H1 vaccination because of the way that it's written. But many states have that written in there specifically, so it may be a challenge to provide the COVID-19 immunization, as an example, um, in the future if they don't get that rewritten at the state level. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, and we are seeing that that's the case. And that's where NASPA's come in really handy. NASPA is a uh, is the, the state group that's really collecting all of the different state-specific information. But yet on a local level, you do have to look at what your own uh, practice at states and then look to see if it's flexible enough to allow for, um, for the current um, language around COVID. And so in some states do have to do that. They have to rewrite it. So that's already starting to happen on a state level. Um, also, I, a lot of the practice acts have specific um, vaccination requirements around aging agents. Like, so pediatrics, at what level can you uh, actually vaccinate or to what level, to what age level? Um, and so that's another discussion to have, because if you're only able to vaccinate adults, for example, obviously you're going to miss the opportunity to vaccinate kids. Um or vice versa. So those are all the intricacies you have to look at to be able to be prepared for when this vaccine becomes available. So obviously, the time to start that is today. Uh, because when the vaccine does come out, you want to be prepared to be able to have the max amount of impact, um, and the max amount of opportunity to really help on that public health effort. So if we get the legislation changed at the state level, does that then ensure adequate reimbursement for pharmacies that would be dispensing a COVID-19 vaccination? Well, so the scope of practice is slightly decoupled from the, uh, from the billing, right, for the reimbursement. So we still have to marry those two and make sure that the language for um, both are supported. So it is not just advocating on the scope, it's advocating on that plus um, the level of reimbursement. And then we're talking about federal from a Medicare level, from a federal level, but then we have to look at things like Medicaid, that's a state-specific reimbursement, and then the commercial payers, and that again could be a, a local type of decision or an employer-based decision based on if it's self-insured employer. So um, it doesn't stop just at that federal level. You still have to work within all of those different types of payers to make sure that the, that the billing follows the ability for you to be compensated based on the scope of practice that you're able to practice at. 
So it is multi-layered. So there's not one blanket answer to that because you do have to take all of those things into consideration. But, you know, I think that's where I mentioned earlier, the importance of being involved on different levels. Um, it's really important to be involved in different levels because you want to make sure you have the, the most ability to impact um, your, your, your population in, in a positive way by being able to be able to impact at those different levels, I guess. Wonderful. So there's a bit of a paradigm shift happening right now in the, far, in the way that pharmacies operate. Before COVID-19 hit, there was already a shift taking place because we know um, that the dispensing side of the business is not as profitable as it once was. Um, pharmacies are not getting those reimbursements um, in terms of the dollars um, by just simply, again, dispensing and filling medications for patients. Um, so when we think about the future of, of pharmacy, um, with it being less profitable today and, and, and profit margins being squeezed, where do you really feel like that is heading, uh, and and I and I just want to hear your feedback. I know that you're not an owner operator of a pharmacy uh, of a pharmacy currently, but uh, you know having this conversation all the time with pharmacy owners, um, where do you really see them making up um, for for those lost profits for, from an owner operator perspective to 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 set the um, the overall you know patient care aside for a minute? Um, where do you see the future of pharmacy evolving and them being able to make up? Uh, some of those losses on the dispensing side? I absolutely think that the service component is going to be a very key um, revenue stream for pharmacies moving forward. You know, and I think it's happening now. If you're looking at the transformation um, with all the discussions with CPESN, um, all of the ACT, you know, discussions with the colleges of pharmacy and they're now they're focused on community pharmacies with this pandemic and the, the focus on the service that pharmacists are bringing um, as essential providers, I really feel like pharmacists can step up into that primary care role for access points and service points um, to be able to make a, some of that revenue up from, um, from the loss of the dispensing revenue. And so that that is the transition that we have to get to. It's a pendulum. You know, I think we always want to, you know, have an immediate, you know, I guess, resolution, how are we going to do this today? Because people are truly struggling right now, right? We're having community pharmacies closed today um, and it's not happening fast enough to get there. And I think we've talked about this a long time when we've talked about the shift from fee-for-service to value-based care. It's the same challenges that primary care providers are facing and systems are facing. So I always try to look at both and not just think about this as a, 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 a situation that's happening to pharmacy. This situation is happening in healthcare, a lot of the way that that physicians and that other providers have been paid is changing dramatically to the point where a lot of physician offices are closing. There's been a lot of consolidation in healthcare, and it's challenging. So it is not an easy answer. But I truly feel like those that have been very innovative in trying to be some of the first adopters in, in that transition are the ones that are probably going to have the most success in getting through this successfully because they have been willing to you know, be creative and create partnerships and think uh, about ways to be able to leverage these opportunities and get to that point um, before they have to think about worse outcomes. So I, I do think that that is something that, that people really need to embrace and, and change is hard. Uh, but there is, you know, this is this is what's happening, unfortunately. So 
Um, I do see, though, a lot of uh, opportunities and upticks of, of, of the communication happening with independence, the outreach, the creativity that they've been able to provide, you know, and, and people like, like I said earlier, they, they, they see their pharmacists now as essential. That's where they're going to, to access care. And so we do have to make sure that we, we create those opportunities with what we're doing to provide those, those clinical interventions that do add to value. And eventually we will get to, to that value model that I think we're, we've all been trying to get there sooner, but it hasn't happened quick, quick enough. Um, but that, that to me is, is the shift that they, that pharmacies have to make. And it's at all levels, it's independent, it's the larger pharmacy um, retailers, uh, pharmacy in general is really having to, to shift how they think about delivery of care and be an access point, a uh, clinical service point for uh, patients that are really looking for that because they definitely need that flexibility. Um, the other thing that, and we haven't really talked about it, but it is the whole telemedicine, telehealth model. Um, again, a big shift. A lot of providers did not necessarily embrace it initially. And now that they've actually had to, by almost by force, um, embrace telemedicine, they're like, wow, this isn't as bad as I thought. Um, this is actually something that I can continue to do post-COVID. So there's going to be a huge shift in the, the view of telemedicine and what continues post-pandemic. And I think that it can be positive because you know people need flexibility. There's just so many things that uh, are competing priorities that if we create new ways for people to have access, uh, that will have a, a hopefully a positive um, outcome in the health of the population. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on with you as well is we hear all the time uh, from guests, from from pharmacy owners, from executives in the industry that one of the challenges for so many of these independent uh, pharmacies, as it is for so many business owners around the country, regardless if they're in healthcare or not, is they just don't have enough time. And, you know, none of us have enough time. I, I, when you think about pharmacy and the current model, wanted to get your opinion on how important is a med synchronization program to pharmacies at this stage? When you talk about you know, reorganizing the face of pharmacy and the model of pharmacy, that it has to be, um, and I'm, I'm not saying that it has to be, but I want to get your opinion that it should be or needs to be uh, a migration to an appointment-based model of medication for the average listener, you know, you wouldn't go to your doctor's office without an appointment. You might go to a, an outpatient center or an urgent care, for example, without an appointment. But to see a primary care physician, you don't just walk through the door, whereas pharmacy is a retail setting. You can walk through the door with a new prescription or to get an OTC product. But for managing that patient population and making that transition to have the time within the workflow of a pharmacy to have those consultations with patients or to perhaps set up my telehealth operation to, to, to be able to have the bandwidth within my staff and my workflow to have those conversations with patients. Do you feel like med synchronization is essential to making that transition for pharmacies? I, I think so when done appropriately, right? Like, you know, I, I don't think that just med syncing by itself is a value unless you've actually med synced the right meds. <laughs> so those are, I always think about that because I think people Again, when they think medicine, they're like, oh, they're just going to tie them all at the same date, anchor date, and there you go. But there's a there's a whole process to get to an appropriate medicine. And not, then obviously it changes because prescriptions aren't just prescribed at that same level. 
obviously you're still getting care and things can enter uh, your, your, your regimen within middle of the month. So you still have to make an active effort to really reevaluate. Is this still appropriate? So, but I do think um, from a workflow management and what makes sense, MedSync as a concept is, is really trying to um, align that. And to your point, you do need to start thinking about different models. Um, this is where I think it's, this is really critical for pharmacists as they're thinking about what's the future of pharmacy. And a lot of times we want to superimpose what, what we want and from what we know versus what we need to do. And sometimes it's to like completely reevaluate what we're doing and potentially blow it up and start over again. You know, I mean, that's, it's very easy to say, but very hard to do, but really it's, it's, not trying to retrofit a process into something that it's maybe not the way it needs to be anymore, but really thinking about, you know, how do I take an aspect of this and really reframe it and, and try to create new opportunities? And, you know, one of the ways, because I've always had the same challenges, right? I never had enough resources. There's always all these barriers, but think creatively about potential partnerships. We um, here at, at the FPHA, I worked at and with Symphonia, we leverage university relationships with the colleges of pharmacies. We used workforce um, from the students that actually needed training opportunities to obtain some of those resources and residency training opportunities to bring in residents to help us with some of our quality improvement projects and some of the new things that we want to try out when we don't necessarily have the money to hire, you know, two or three new FTEs. And from that, we learned, okay, this is something that is viable that can become sustainable. And then from that, build it to scale. So it, it, it does take effort. Obviously, if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. But it is thinking of those um, ways to leverage resources that are out there that creates a win win opportunity, you know, training for them, a new site for them, and then potentially an opportunity for um, these individuals to create their own new job. Um, once, you know, once they finish that experience. So those are the kinds of things that I think are really um, effective ways to be able to do that to reevaluate um, and then think about ways to improve. And so MedSync, back to the question, MedSync is one tool that was, you know, thought of as a way to, to create that opportunity to reevaluate workflow. I think it's great. And it's obviously not just that, it's an evolution. So MedSync and how do you improve upon that? And how do you continue to uh, make that a better process? So at the end of the day, uh, what you've created is something that actually gets a person to the best outcome. Um, and ultimately what my thing what the one thing I think about in everything that I do, everything personally, professionally, um, is what is the mission of what I want to accomplish. And, and for me, it's always been to make sure that what we do and what we design leads to better patient care, uh, better outcomes for the patient. And if you really work with that as your guide, um, that really drives a lot of that, that collaboration to, to get there in an effective way and think about it. And ultimately, you know, one of the things that's always been said to me, and I've always known this is if you're doing it for the right reasons, if you're having the best outcome outcomes possible, you will be paid for that because at the end of the day, value, you know, value is what really pays for that. And, um, and that's how I've always been able to justify my FTE, the FTAs I brought on board, how do we grow programs by having that best outcome for the patient um, so that people see why it's so critically important. I love that. Absolutely. You've got to have that mission statement and that purpose in place as the foundation to build um, on top of and uh, could not agree with you more. So I wanted to, if you could, um, you've mentioned a lot of different organizations, a lot of places where 
pharmacies, patients can even go um, for additional resources, information, not just on COVID-19, uh, but, uh, but even above and beyond that. Can you just mention again uh, some of those different um, uh, resources and places that uh, listeners can go to? Absolutely. So I would definitely start with the American Pharmacists Association. Uh, no bias there, but <laughs> I mean, that's that's, you know, that is the uh, umbrella organization for for pharmacy. And they definitely have links to a lot of the resources that I mentioned. They have the link to um, NASPA. Uh, it's the uh, National Alliance of State Pharmacy Associations, uh, CDC, Centers for Disease Control, the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, all of those are linked through the uh, the APHA Pharmacist Guide to Coronavirus. So they have a lot of resources there. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, some of the, the most current literature evidence on, on what is effective based on the evidence as it's coming. Because, oh my gosh, there is so much evidence uh, and misinformation, unfortunately, also. So we have to make sure that we, as pharmacists, are providing the, the best information based on the evidence that's truly out there right now. Fantastic. Well... Thank you so much for your time today, Sandra. It has been an absolute pleasure. I know you've got a full plate, so I don't want to hold you up anymore today, let you get back to, uh, to it. So thank you again for being here with us. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity, and thank you for all these uh, informative podcasts that you've been putting together. Oh, thank you. Yes. And so... Again, thank you, Sandra. Uh, that concludes episode five of the Pharmacy Now podcast. Special thanks to the best producer in the biz, Gary Finer, for always being here and put this thing together. We will see you next time on episode six.